Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show, where ordinary heroes tell extraordinary stories during unique and never been heard before conversations with your host, Hillary Arno Burns. Hillary's unique listening and way of asking questions results in conversations that aren't usually talked about. So you can create the life that you really want, but are afraid you can't really have. We are demonstrating the greatness in the human spirit and creating a world where we all reclaim our birthright of joy, happiness, purpose, and passion. Now, here's your host, Hilary Arno Burns. Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show. And I have a very, very special guest today. Before I introduce him, I'm just going to show you my third book. Last week, I couldn't show it for some reason. Your Bullshit is Your Blessing, How to Stop Fixing Yourself and Start Having Fun. If you've ever felt bad in your life, these are tools and techniques for really creating a lot more fun in your life. So we have that book. My second book is Real Talk. How to say the things you've never said so you can have the things you've always wanted. So if you have trouble speaking up, get that book. You can go to realtalkwithhillary.com and click on the links there. And then the good old favorite, my memoir that took me seven years to write the second piece of French toast. That was my very first book. They're all available on Amazon. And please let me know how you like them. So now I'm going to introduce my guest, Peter De Silva. And I'm just going to show you his website. Can you believe that? So anyway, Peter, as you can read, executive leader, chairman, CEO, board member, community leader, former Harvard University senior fellow, doctor of humane letters, and author of Taking Stock. Today, we're going to be talking about Peter's book and his take on leadership. And also, so here's his book, Taking Stock. And... Um, Anyway, we'll give you the links later, but Peter, you know, I always like to have people tell their stories and, you know, inspire you by how they've overcome obstacles. And so we will be talking about some of the things that Peter has overcome in an amazing, incredible way. So welcome, Peter De Silva. Thank you, Hillary. It's great to be with you today. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to it's great to meet you. So now, when we were talking, I call it in the bullpen, we have the halftime, we have the bullpen. Well, actually, no, baseball probably doesn't have halftime, but whatever. I'm mixing my sports metaphors. But so when you you said that when you were young, you instead of you, you weren't able to do the physical activities like most of your friends. So you started you went to brain instead of brawn. But can you tell us about what happened when you were? You know, you were just going along as a regular, regular little boy. And then what happened? Yeah, it's a, been an interesting journey, uh, but it all started as a young, young boy um, when it became apparent that something was wrong with me and my sister, who also has this disease called Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease. And it was a bit vexing for the doctors. They sort of couldn't diagnose it at first, but the symptoms were lots of falling, lots of tripping, lots of balance problems. And when I was a young teenager, they diagnosed this particular malady called Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease. And CMT, as we call it, is a progressively degenerative neurological disorder. 
that starts in your extremities and then works its way into the inner body. So it doesn't, it's not life uh, shortening, uh, but it is, you know, life quality of life changing for sure. Um, and so again, you have this problem with balance and falling and tripping and, and those sorts of things. And so that's where it all started. And I'll never forget, you know, in high school, my parents decided it was time for me to have some corrective surgeries to try to provide a bit more stability and balance for me. And uh, my whole freshman year of high school, well, that's not right. The first half of my freshman year of high school actually was, was in a bed at home and didn't go to school and had to be tutored at home and such. And then, oh, by the way, my freshman year in college, we had to do the same same thing um, to try and provide some stability for me. And you know what? The good news is those surgeries really provide some relief uh, in the short term. There's no changing the course of this disease. There is no treatment for it. There's no cure for it. There are 3 million people around the world that have this disorder. And Hillary, I'll make a bet. Now that you're familiar with it, you're going to find someone or know someone or know someone who knows someone who has this disorder. This disorder. Uh, just because it's more prevalent, I think, mm. than, than people realize uh, here in the country. But that really started me on a different path. I remember sitting down with my parents one day and they said, look, you're not going to be able to be the athlete that your brother was. My older brother was a great athlete and your you know, sister was a one, had a wonderful voice. You're going to have to find your own way in life. And at that moment, I decided athletics were out, going in the military were out, things I wanted to do. Um, and I was going to have to use my brain. And that was okay. It was just a good recognition early in life that that was going to be the path that I would have to pursue. And so I was blessed uh, to go to UMass Dartmouth. Um, uh, it, it's where I grew up and I came out of there with a business degree. And um, again, I was lucky to find a job at Fidelity Investments and I made, I made something of it. You know, I, I, my parents always said that we never had everything we wanted as a family, but we always had everything we needed. And so when it came time for education, they provided an education. It was UMass Dartmouth. It wasn't Harvard, but you know what? That was good enough. That was, that really set me on a really, really, really good course. And so I had a 35 year business career in financial services uh, at Fidelity Investments and TD Ameritrade and Scottrade and had a lot of senior positions in, in very wonderful companies. And, and I hope that I've left a legacy of not only a legacy of, of, of you know, improving things, but a legacy whereby people say, you know what, I admire that person. He's a person of character. He's a person of intellect. He's a person of caring. And later, maybe we can talk about my ultimate definition of leadership, which is really about caring uh, at the end of the mm. day. Now, um, so, be, so can we go, just go back a little bit? So, because I'm left wondering. Um, were like were you athletic before you were aware of this disease you know before you started falling and stuff were you ever athletic or did it always hinder you but not unknowingly no it was always there it was always present i was never a good athlete okay. i could never really run and those were some of the early symptoms that uh, okay. you know that we had to work through i'll tell you one quick story you know when i was a young boy like all young most young boys i played little league huh. baseball not well but I played and I'll never forget this. It was, you know, one of these bottom of the seventh inning. We only played seven, in seven innings back then. And, you know, there was a couple runners on the base and I was at play at the plate and I wasn't very good. And I remember this distinctly where the coach said, you know, normally you'd say hit the, you know, let the hit the bat with the ball, let the ball hit the bat. My, my coach said, just let the ball hit the bat. You don't need to do much. Just let it hit the bat. You don't even need to swing. Just stick it out there. <laughs> so I did. 
And I ran down the first base. I'm like, my goodness gracious, we might actually win this ball game. But guess what happened? I tripped. I fell. Ah. And we lost the game. And, ah. and so, you know, there are, there are those kinds of moments that can be painful, but they're also transformative. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the moment again where I realized, okay, I, I'm going to have to take another path. So you didn't know, but you didn't know why you were falling at that point, right? No, not really. It wasn't clear. I hadn't been diagnosed. It was clear something was up, but it it wasn't, it wasn't diagnosed at that juncture. So how does that disease, does it still affect you now? Yeah, it affects you uh, peripherally. So as I said, I had a lot of surgeries to try and give me more stability in my ankles, my legs, and my feet. And, And I can get around. I'm not wheelchair bound. My sister is. Unfortunately, she's been in a wheelchair for 25 years. Uh, but wow. I get around and get around pretty pretty well uh, over overall. But it's a slow, steady deterioration. You can feel it in your hands. You can feel it in your legs and such. Uh, it's it's a bit of a wasting disease, which basically means that the muscles atrophy over time because they're not getting the right neurological responses. Um, mm-hmm. And so you know you have this atrophy that goes on. But look, I'm a fighter. I'm not going down without one heck of a fight. I can tell you that. Right. I mean, you've you've. I mean, you've lasted a lot of years, right? I mean, that was a long time ago, right? When you were, I don't know how old you are, but um, quite a bit. So congratulations for that. Yeah. Did your sister get the surgeries too? She had some as well and just didn't fare quite as well as as mm-hmm. I did, um, which was which was very sad. But, you know, she's a special ed teacher. She does amazing things uh, for for people in need. And I couldn't be more proud of what she does. Wow. Wow. Well, congratulations, both of you for thank you for keeping on going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. So, okay. So let's see. You also mentioned, I don't know if I'm skipping around, but you, so you went to, you went to college, you got your job. When you, you mentioned kidney disease. When did that kick in? Was that yeah. young too? Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, right after college. So I just finished up college. So I'm 22, 23, somewhere in that range. And one day, I never forget this, just went to the doctor. I didn't feel well. I thought I had a cold or something. He literally did a very cursory exam, sort of pinched my skin, took a blood pressure, took temperature, and he literally said, go check yourself into the hospital. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I just came here because I'm not feeling that well. He says, if you don't go check yourself into the hospital, I won't be responsible for what happens to you. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and my mother was a nurse at the local hospital. So I called her up and she called him and she said, yeah, you better, you better come over, but not having a clue what was going on. And so it was a long weekend of tests and such. And they came back and said, look, we think you might have leukemia. Um, there's a big mass on your left side and we're going to have to address it. I'm like, oh, okay, great. But we lived in a fairly small community, and so my parents took me up to Boston, where there was better care, and um, they confirmed and said, look, there's a massive mass on your left side. We're going to have to deal with it. I don't know if it's cancerous or not yet, but we have to deal with it. So long story short, um, they they operated, did surgery, and found a football-sized mass on my left side, which in essence was my kidney. It was completely blocked. It was no function, a limited function. And it had blown up in a very, very significant way. And, and so they removed that mass, obviously, and tried to repair the kidney. But unfortunately, it was not repairable. And after a couple of attempts, we had to take it out. So, yeah, that was another setback for me right after college. Um, and again, that just set me on a path to say, you know what, 
maybe my health's not going to be that great. So we're, we're just going to focus on, you know, intellectual pursuits. We're going to focus on, in my case, business and, you know, and that served me very well. Wow. So was that the end of the kid? I mean, were you fine after that with the kidney? Yeah, you just have one. Interestingly, and... Yeah. Interestingly, yeah. yeah I've, got, I've got one wow. on the right side. It's been perfect. Um, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do anything that would cause any, any, uh, any pressure on it, but no, it's been, been terrific. Wow. Wow. But you know, those things, they, 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 yeah. really, they really changed me in a, in a lot of ways and they changed my leadership style, I think is as well. Um, you know, I felt like maybe because of my CMT and in some degree because of the kidney issues, I felt like I had to outwork everybody to overcompensate mm. for any perceived weaknesses that I might have or any other inferiorities that I might have felt that I had. I don't feel like I had any, but I think I felt like I felt I had some. Right. Um, I had to prove that despite my physical limitations, I could more than compensate for that with with my other other uh, capabilities. It also gave me more compassion for others. It definitely helped me understand others who who have difficulty. It probably made I know it made me a much more humble person. Uh, mm. grateful and blessed for the things that I had. And again, back to my parents, you know, this whole idea that you don't have everything you want, but you have everything you need. I felt the same way about myself at that point in my life. I'm like, you know what? I've got everything I need. I've got my brain. I've got a body. I've got capabilities and I'm going to go show others. So I think humility was, was really in, ingrained into me. Uh, but there was one negative too, I think, because I think most of those are positive. One negative was this idea that I couldn't show vulnerability, that mm. I was really trying to overcompensate in many respects for for the kinds of things I was just describing. And so showing any kind of vulnerability would, in my view at that time, uh, make me look weak. And I just felt like I couldn't do that. And I've since changed my view on that, but that's the way it was in my early 20s. Wow. All right. So a couple questions. And I have to write them down. Otherwise, I forget. So that's why I went like, oh, I forgot. So was the kidney, did it have anything to do with the... Um, CMT, or was it random? Absolutely not. Completely random. Wow. Okay. Right. That was one. Um, the other thing was, did people know, like you said, you didn't want to show vulnerability. Did they know about any of this or did you just hide it and work hard? I just kept it quiet. Um, my parents yeah. had told me that this was my problem or our problem as a family. It was nobody else needed to know that somehow people would look different if if I exposed it. And so okay. you just grind through it and it is what it is and you don't show any vulnerability. Wow. Okay. Now, do you think because of those two things, well, let's just say if you hadn't had them, do you think you would have been such a hard worker? Do you think you would have achieved the success you, you did, you know, trying to prove that you weren't weak? Like, or do you think you would have been that way anyway? Or do you think that's what, you know, molded you into that person? I think there's a bit of both in the sense that clearly these events helped to shape and mold me into who I became for good or for bad, because there are some bad elements to it, like the vulnerability part of it. Um, but I, I think I am who I am. I think that, you know, I would have always worked hard. I would have always pursued, you know, the kinds of things I wanted to pursue in life and leaving mm -hmm. a legacy is important to me. Again, I've, what I've come to learn though over time is my most important legacy won't be my business pursuits. It'll be my family. It'll be my 33-year wife, Michelle. It'll be our two daughters, Christine and Sarah. 
ultimately that's what's going to matter. Nobody's going to put on my tombstone that I was president of this or CEO of that. Right. It won't matter. It really won't matter. What will matter is, you know, do my values transcend down to my children? Do they transcend down to my nephews and nieces? And, you know, will they be better people maybe for, for having been exposed to me? Mm. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think as we get older, we, we, we get clearer on what's, a, what's important. That's what, that's what I'm seeing, you know, cause I'm always like a doing person too. Like, you know, okay, am I going to do another book? Blah, 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 blah. It's like, I never stopped to smell the roses, right? Like, what am I even doing with these? Well, I, you know, it, it was like, it was like, I expected some angel to come give me a halo or something. Well, no one did. And now it's like, publish a book. Who cares? I mean, it's not like who cares. Cause I think they're valuable, but it really never ends that strive to go. I don't even know where, and then I'm not enjoying the journey. I don't know if you've had any of that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think you can get <laughs> to a point, you can get to a point where it's like, what's the pursuit, right? I mean, you are pursuing something. Sometimes I'm not exactly sure what, what it is, what that end game is. <laughs> yes. I am clearer today that the end game is about, you know, the people that you touch, the values that you leave, the friendships that you make, that's what's of value. A lot of the other things are interesting, but ultimately are welcome. Yes. So now are you still working or have you stopped? Yeah, so it's interesting. So as my career progressed, I spent 17 years at Fidelity. I spent another uh, 12 years at a company called UMB Financial Corporation out of Kansas City. Then I went to Scott Trade and we sold that company to TD Ameritrade. Then I went to TD Ameritrade and we sold that company to Charles Schwab about three years ago. And oh. at that point, Charles Schwab said, you can go now. You know, we don't need your help anymore. And I said, that's fine. Um, here's a two-year non-compete. <laughs> here's oh. a two-year non-compete. You got to go sit on the sidelines for, for two years. And so that is now over. So I am contemplating at this moment, you know, what I want to do, whether I want to go back in and do another large job or whether it's something a bit more impactful on the social impact side. Um, so I'm still I'm still thinking my way through that. Mm. Well, I hope they gave you a package if you had to sit on the sidelines. Well, that's usually not... the way it works. <laughs> OK, good. I know. Otherwise, it's like, well, you can't work here and you can't work. So that's not fair. All right. Good. Right. I know it's none of my business, but I was just. That's where I went yep. in my mind. It was, it was so. all it was all good. All good. <laughs> okay, good. All right, cool. So then you so you say you became more uh well, two things. One was, you know, in the last couple of years you became more vulnerable, but the other is I guess originally you became um more compassionate. Was was there a time when you weren't? I mean, what were you always compassionate or did you become it when after you went through what you went through do you think yeah no i i always thought i was a pretty compassionate understanding kind of young young man young person at the time mm. i remember my parents saying you have the patience of job i mean I had, mm. I had older brothers and sisters so you know i wasn't the oldest i wasn't the youngest i was sort of in that middle that middle zone um so i always felt like i was patient and an understanding person but it became clearer to me that particularly people with with physical issues that I sort of have an affection for, you know, disability rights as an example is something I feel very 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 strongly about, uh, not because I need it but because others do. My sister does, as I, as I mentioned. Um, so it made me a much more compassionate leader. It made me more understanding 
of people with limitations of all kinds. And I would hope that some would say that I was supportive of, of them in that regard. You know, I lived, when I lived in Kansas City, I was CEO of a bank. And as you know, bankers tend to give back to their communities. They do a lot of things in their community. Um, bankers draw their strength from their community. So there's an expectation that they'll give back. And I did more than you can imagine in terms of events I sponsored and groups that I took care of and such. And it, it made me feel good, you know, that I was doing some good for, for the folks who needed, who needed help. And when my wife and I left Kansas City 12 years later, they gave us a big award for the, what's called the Star oh. Award for all the community work that we had done. So it, the, the whole series of, of things in my life just made me more compassionate, more understanding, more patient. And um, I think those were generally good things. Mm. And uh, what number kid are you? Like how many older siblings did you have? I'm um, three out of four. So you're number three. Okay. So the first two, they were fine. They didn't have the CMT at all? No, no. So my older brother didn't. My sister did. She's the one in the wheelchair. Oh. But we sort of oh, got diagnosed roughly at the same time. And then the fourth? my younger brother and he's showing some signs of it now i mean this thing's a very sinister disease in the sense that it can it can manifest itself very young it can show up at birth almost or it can show mm. up in when somebody's in their 50s or 60s or you can be completely healthy today and there's something called a spontaneous mutation of your genes where you could wake up tomorrow theoretically and you know you'd have a gene genetic abnormality all of a sudden and you'd end up with cm it's very frustrating because it it can't appear at, at almost any stage mm. of life. Wow. Huh. But you and know, I'm, your I'm super I'm super positive though, and here's why. So yeah, you know, I I'm in the middle of raising some money for what's called the CMT Research Foundation. Um, we're funding oh. research to try to find treatments and maybe ultimately a cure for this disease. And we set out to raise ten million dollars a few about a year and a half ago, and we've raised about six uh, six million so far. And we've been able wow. to deploy that into reading research here in the U.S. and in Cyprus and in South Korea and in England, all over the world. Uh, and I'm thrilled that um, we don't have a cure yet or, or even a treatment, but there is some very promising science on the horizon. And for those who don't know about gene therapy and, and gene splicing and such, it is the future of medicine, particularly genetic medicine, obviously. And so, you know, very simply, I'll just describe the disease very simply. So we all have this protein in our body called PMP22. You have it, I have it, we all have it. Every single human being on the planet has it. I have three expressions of that protein. You have two. It's that, mm -hmm. it's that simple and it's that complex. It's that simple in the sense that my three expressions cause this, this abnormality. Yours are just fine. So what if you could either suppress the extra expression of that PMP22, right? So if you could just shut it down, great. Um, if you could edit it out, that would be great. If you could literally go mm -hmm. in and edit it out or splice the gene in a way that you could edit it out ultimately. And they are closer than ever to being able to do those sorts of those sorts of things. So I'm very optimistic for young people today who get diagnosed with this, that they won't have to go through a lifetime of, of pain and suffering. Wow. And had your parents heard of it before you guys were diagnosed? Did they? No, no. So there was no evidence of it in the family tree, so to speak. Ultimately, wow. it was concluded that my, my dad was the carrier, you know, and he had he had some issues later in life, for sure. Um, oh. 
But um, as a youth, he was the most athletic guy you could imagine. I got pictures of him doing one-handed handstands and you wow. know, football and all that stuff. But his was later in life. But he carried it, and somehow it got somehow it got passed down to the the children. Wow, it's amazing, right? Well, obviously, you're making a difference for that people all over. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We're going to get this done. Yeah. Good. Well, it needs someone like you. So I'm sorry you have to suffer, but <laughs> could, could okay. be one of your purposes, right? You know, you never know. You never yeah. know why we're all here, but I'm, I'm okay with it. It's fine. Yeah. Oh, so now did you want to talk about the vulnerable? We have five minutes before the commercial break about how, you know, I know you didn't want to show vulnerability before. And then something in the past year or two changed. What what was that? Yeah, as you acknowledge vulnerability, I, I viewed that as a strength that you know, not to be vulnerable. Like you can't be vulnerable. You can't let others behind the facade. And that had been sort of drilled into me by my parents. And I hate the word facade because I felt like I was authentic as a person, mm -hmm. except for this one, this one issue. And so over time, it became more apparent that, you know, I think I think I need to be a bit more authentic, if you will, with this. And I struggled with it. I really struggled with this idea of telling others about it. But uh, after I was done at TD Ameritrade, uh, I ended up at Harvard. Um, there's a wonderful program called the Advanced Leadership Initiative at Harvard, and I was invited to participate in that as a senior fellow. And that program gave me sort of new insights and a new lens into lots of social problems in America and, and in the world, right? So we dealt with some of the most intractable social problems you could imagine from, you know, everything from racism to poverty to drug addiction, et cetera. And it, it's just the process of sort of going through that and, and learning about other struggles made mine seem so insignificant. It just made it seem almost irrelevant. Here I am, you know, looking healthy and feeling healthy by and large. Um, and I just said, you know what? If I can help others by coming out, so to speak, and talking about this problem and raising money and doing all the things that we're trying to do, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to overcome my fear of rejection and my fear of failure, and I'm just going to do it. And the reception was unbelievable. I did it first in the Harvard program, in essence. You know, I think we had to do a report. We had to do sort of a, a personal journey report. And I got up and talked to my mm. cohort about it. And I was scared to death. But you know what? Instead of rejection, I got an, a big, warm embrace. And people have been so helpful uh, to me since then. They want to help me raise money and, and all that good stuff. Uh, coincidentally, too, are you familiar with the country music singer, Alan Jackson? It's five o'clock somewhere, no. you know, you know, some okay. of his songs, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guarantee you. Well, last fall, he sat down with Jenna Bush Hager and said, I have CMT. And it's the first time somebody of that notoriety sat down and publicly said, I have this disease. And when you asked him, it's so interesting. When you asked him, like, why did you come out now? He says, I didn't want to. But he said, I'm falling on stage. I'm tripping. And people think I'm drunk or on mm -hmm. drugs. And he's like, I'm not. <laughs> I've got this thing called CMT. And he did a wonderful job. He went on to describe it. And, and he went on to talk a little bit about it. But then he said, I don't want, and this, you know, I think the same way. He's like, I don't want my CMT to define me. I want my music to define me. 
that's the legacy I want. I don't want CMT mm. to define me. And I feel the same way. I never wanted it to define me. CMT is what I have. It's not who I am. And, you know, he felt the same way. So I recently wrote him a letter. I haven't heard back. I sent him a copy of my new book. I wrote him a nice letter and said, hey, I'd love to engage with you, but I haven't heard back from him just yet. So maybe he'll hear this on the show and he'll uh, he'll write back to me. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, and did, um, because that's what, you know, this book that I have, it's, it's, it's talking about stuff. Like I call it saying what can't be said, all that stuff that we're afraid to say you know, mine is I'm a people pleaser. I don't want anyone to get upset. You know, it's more that flavor than thinking I'm weak. Well, thinking I'm crazy. I mean, that's that's one of the things too. But, you know, because I'm a worrier and I get paranoid and needy and all that. And I don't want people to know that. But this is, you know, the whole thing getting real is about being that real self. Yes, sometimes I worry. Sometimes I am so insecure. I can't even like function, you know, and to just own that part instead of hiding it. You know, it's not a disease, but it's, it's my shtick, you know, it's whatever. And, and coming, you know, coming out, I think we all have stuff that we come out with that we've hidden, you know, shame stuff. And, and what I found is when I've said it, not only has no one judged me, but it's opened up something for them to be able to talk about what they don't talk about. 100% correct. I think you're 100% correct. And by being authentic, you're going to get authenticity back, right? And that's yeah. what I had to learn. I had to learn that that you know, I, I like I said, I was I always thought I was authentic, except maybe for this one little little issue. And but when I opened up about it, all of a sudden people open up back, and you know they wouldn't have done that necessarily, but now they realize that you're showing some vulnerability. They're willing to show some vulnerability as well. Yeah. And did it open up something for you that now you weren't hiding this? Like, did it open up some freedom in your life? Oh, 100%. 100%. Made me feel like I can truly be the person that I am, for good or for bad. And um, like I said, we've been raising money and I've been out talking to friends of mine who said, wow, I had no idea. But now that I know, how can I help? I mean, it's been it's been really remarkable. Wow. That's so great. Okay. So now... Well, good. We're going to explore some leadership and so your book in the next half. But now we're going to go to our sponsor and you'll we'll hear from them right now. So stay tuned. Has social-emotional learning become just one more thing on your teacher's plates? Do teachers and students both find it boring and ineffective? Then bring Kikori to your school. Kikori transforms classrooms through experiential SEL activities that help students play, reflect, connect, and grow. Even better, students say it's more fun than recess. Schedule a no-obligation conversation at kikoriapp.com slash bringkikori. K-I-K-O-R-I. Do you ever feel like you can't say what you really want to say? Or that you're stuck or in a holding pattern in your relationships, career, personal life, or finances? Are there things you want in life that you've given up on? Are you resigned that this is as good as it's going to get? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then Hillary Burns, host of the Getting Real with Hillary show, has the solution you need. 
Hillary is a published author of three books and has a program called The Getting Real Process. This process frees you from what is holding you back, allowing you to create a life you love. Don't believe it? It is hard to believe that it could work, isn't it? The proof is that hundreds of Hillary's clients have used the Getting Real process and are now free to create whatever they want in relationships, career, finances, enjoying life, or just loving themselves more. So go to realtalkwithhillary.com and order Hillary's book, Real Talk, and set up a conversation. So thank you to our sponsors, KikoriApp.com. That's my my daughter works for that company. That was her voice. I always have to tell people that. And it's a social emotional learning um, app for teachers, which can really, you know, heal what what kids lost during COVID when they had no, you know, connecting and social, social connecting. So anyway, I recommend it highly. Go to KikoriApp.com and connect. And then, of course, realtalkwithhillary.com, our other sponsor. <laughs> so also, I have to put a plug in for my photographer who took this picture. I ran into her after all these years, and she was like, you know, you're supposed to check with me before you use that photo. And I was like, oh, I had no idea. So anyway, Suzanne Gold, um, get in touch with me. I can put you in touch with her if you need a headshot. She's really talented and, um, you know. I always tell people, they say, well, you don't look like that anymore. And I'm like, well, I don't think I ever did, <laughs> but it's a great picture. So we use it. Anyway, Suzanne Gold, amazing photographer. And here we are back with Peter De Silva. And we're going to start talking about leadership. Well, is there anything else about um, the vulnerability? And when you started talking about stuff like, you know, what kind of stuff did other people open well i'll give you an example when my dad died and i went to some clients and i i was still upset obviously and i shared it and what we went through and stuff and i saw the difference in them they opened up about what they were going through and before that it had just been like professional and stuff like that i i sell aflac that's what i do by day and you know but it really opened up something in our relationship all of a sudden we were connected all of a sudden we were vulnerable all of a sudden we were talking about what happened personally. And, and for me, it was much more enjoyable um, than when it was just, you know, business. So did you find that as well when you started talking that people started telling you stuff too? Yeah, 100% Hillary, that's exactly right. And I think it's this idea that, you know, if you're vulnerable to someone, they're going to share some of that. They may share, share some of their vulnerabilities. And I had that happen to me like quite a bit. And then you are like, wow, I had no idea. And they're like, wow, I had no idea. And all of a sudden, this level of transparency really, really builds and that friendships deepen. Even, mm. even business relationships, to your point, those aren't friendships in the classical way. But I do think they they take on a different life, right? They become more real. They become more authentic. They become more more practical in a lot of ways. And so even if it's not a friend, um, I think when you're as open as you can be, people respond positively to that. Yeah, there's like a connection. Like it, it's not 
physical, but it almost is that you feel connected in a deeper way to people when you know something about them. Yeah. It's interesting. 100%. Yeah. So, okay. So let's talk about your book and what had you, I know you had said you became more compassionate through, you know, your, your, you know, what your challenges, but what had you want to write a book? What's the background there? It's a good question. <laughs> you know, I had spent 35 years in, in the business world. And over time, I would jot these ideas down. Like, you know, I would see something occur. And I'm like, that's a principle. That's that's going to govern my actions uh, in one form or another. And so over time, I had all this, all these notes and all these thoughts about things that I felt were really important. And as a leader, one of the things I would always do when I inherited a new team is I would sit down and articulate these principles and say, guys, here's what I believe. Here's how I like to function as a group and as individuals. And people always responded well to that. One, because I think it's a rare leader who like day one says, here are the principles we're going we're gonna to adhere to. But I also think they felt there was some value in them because they really helped to talk about how we were going to work together and how we were going to care for each other. You know, you end up spending more time with your colleagues sometimes than you do with your family. And so it's important that you have, you know, a great relationship there. You know, one of my principles is to lead by principles and not rules. You know, if you think about the distinction between, oh, I don't know, the Code of Hammurabi, which is 282 rules, they're very prescribed. If you do this, you will be stoned. And, you know, that has been that has been relinquished to the dustbin of history, thankfully. And then if you contrast that with, for example, the Declaration of Independence, which is very principle based, all men are created equal, you know what it means. I mean, you know, now it doesn't then go on for 82,000 words to explain that means, you know, that you're going to treat people with respect and dignity. No, it doesn't need to say that because it's inherent in what is said. So I'm a big believer in in leading by principles, not a bunch of rules and providing people the the framework, if you will, within which they can function and function well. Wow. You just blew my my brain with that one. I mean, because sometimes I say, you know, when people are unreasonable or whatever, their rule, I say they're rule people. They're following the rules, even though they don't make any sense. And so the principles that just go all the way back up. Did you come up with that yourself? Did you come up with Um, that yourself or did you read it somewhere? I I mean, it's just, I love it's so simple. It's just so simple, but makes so. Customer service, hello, you know, yeah. Right. Well, you know, another one of my principles, which I fundamentally believe in, and I hope that people who've worked with me have seen this, goes like this. It says, if you take care of associates, they'll take care of clients, and the rest takes care of itself. It's a very simple leadership model, but candidly, it's the most effective one I've ever put forth. So that's one of the principles I share with my groups when I get together with them the first time. It's like, guys, we're going to start inside because if we don't have the inside right, there's no way we're going to be able to treat our clients right with respect and dignity and such. And that resonates very, very, very strongly uh, with people. And, you know, I'm also a quantitative guy. And so one day I said, you know, how can I prove this quantitatively? Like, I want to be able to prove this thesis quantitatively. And so I went to my finance and HR team and I said, guys, help me figure out how to do this. And they said, well, there's really three variables, right? So you have a variable called what's the associated engagement, like what's the satisfaction of our team? Okay, got it. And then what's the client engagement? 
oh, okay, that makes sense. And we know there's a correlation between those two. And then what are the financial results for the company? And so we went in for like a decade, plotted all these numbers. And we looked at how associate engagement was positively correlated to client engagement, which was positively correlated to outcomes, in this case, financial results. And it was just a very powerful way to be able to prove that this thesis about taking care of the inside really led to the results that we were hoping to, uh, hoping how, to achieve. How did you measure associate engagement and client engagement? Did you have, uh, how did you measure that? Yeah, so we had we had a bunch of surveys that we used oh, for okay. both clients, internal, internal clients, associates, and our external clients. And we okay. tried to keep those surveys consistent over about a decade so that the results were reliable. Um, and we used to put in the annual report every year. It was my favorite chart. And it was really the only chart that mattered to me. It's like, okay, associate engagement, client engagement, and results. And I, 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 I took a hint, too, from Michael Dell. When, when Dell was on fire, we're talking 20, 25 years ago, and he could do no wrong. We'll never forget this. He was at his yeah. annual meeting. And um, he asked for the slideshow to be put up. And so the slideshow was put up for him. And there was one slide. And the slide was the stock price of the company. And he said, are there any questions? And that was his entire speech. <laughs> People clapped and he sat down. Um, so, you know, it was it's always about the results. I'm as focused on that, but I'm a focused on how to. I'm focused on how you get to the outcomes that you're looking for. And, and what were the, um, so the associates filled out a survey and the clients filled out a survey. And then what was the financial result that you could measure from those engagement pieces, what what numbers were you measuring? So we use we use a number of numbers, but certainly um, uh, earnings would be one. Revenue growth would be another. Return on average equity, return on average assets, some of the basic financial yeah. ratios that you use to judge a healthy company. And and were the um, I don't know. I'm just interested in this. So w- were there times when the associates and the clients were not engaged that you could measure that it was down, or was it always because you were focused on it was always going up? It was always a positive correlation, but there it was at different rates of speed. So okay. some years, for example, if you're in the investment business and you're having a bad market environment your clients aren't happy no matter what, (laughs) just to be clear. Nobody likes to lose money, right? right. Um, So there were different rates of speed based upon some external variables. But what we were able to tease out is that the internal variables, in most cases, overcompensated for that. Mm. Oh, that's so cool. All right. So what are some other principles that you you introduced? If you don't mind, I mean, I'm assuming that's what's in your book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. I mean, so the book is is organized a little bit around these 10 10 principles. And again, they were Mm -hmm. formed from a practitioner's standpoint, not an academic standpoint. I think that's very important. No disrespect to many wonderful academics who've written books on leadership. But to be honest, they've never had to do it. They've never been a practitioner. Um, So I come at it through a practitioner lens, not not an academic lens. So another one might be... um, take intelligent risks on emerging leaders. And so just a short story. So when I was a young leader at Fidelity Investments, one day my boss, Fred, walked in my office and he said, Peter, um, we've got a great opportunity for you. And I'm living in Boston at the time with my wife and one daughter. And he said, but it involves relocating to Kentucky. And I said, I don't think I know where that is, but I'm (laughs) really not interested in doing that. 
<laughs> long story short, eventually he convinced me by basically saying, if you don't, you probably don't have a job at the company. Uh, he convinced me I should do that. And that's the way it he was. He motivated way. you. <laughs> 30 years ago, that's the way it was. I mean, your boss oh. came in and said, your your desk is moving to Kentucky. Are you going or not? And either yeah. way is fine. Uh, today, of course, it's a different world. So anyway, so I moved to Kentucky and it was a turnaround. It was, a, or it was part of the operation that was struggling. So it was a bit of a turnaround. And Fred would come down every week. Every week he'd come down, go in his office, read the newspaper, put his feet up on the desk, call a few people and then go home. I'm like, great that you're here. And if I need anything, yeah, I know you're here, but I'm not quite sure why you're coming every week, but whatever. So this went on for two years. And one day I finally finished the job. They moved me back to Boston after about two years. And one night I'm at a cocktail party with Fred's boss, Mark. And I said, Mark says to me, he says, Peter, you know, I'm so proud. You did a great job. And he said, to think most of us on the executive committee didn't think you could do it. And so I paused for a minute. I looked at him, he looked at me, he knows he just made a, a, a faux pas and he moves on to another conversation. So the next morning I walk into Fred's office and I'm like, okay, you got to level with me. What was that all about last night? And he said, it's not a big deal. He said, it all worked out great for you, right? I said, yeah, yeah, it all worked out great. And he said, so don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. I'm like, Fred, I have to know. And he said, look, you were a young guy. You were probably, I was pushing you ahead of where you probably were. I knew you, I had confidence in you. I knew you could do it. And I stopped him and I said, now I understand. The reason you came out there wasn't because you thought I needed help. It's because you were giving them an assurance that you were there if anything went wrong. And he looked at me, kind of looked at the floor and just said, hey, it all worked out. And I really took that to heart and it became part of my leadership style to take risks on young leaders. Now, mm. here's the here's the quid pro quo though, Hillary. And I call this, I use this euphemistically, to build a fence around them. To build a fence around those people. Fred was my fence. He was not going to let me fail. He mm. wanted me to have all the learnings. He wanted me to grow. He wanted me to develop. He wanted to accelerate my, my growth and development. But he wasn't going to let me fail. And yes, he had self-interest, by the way, because, you know, he put me down there. Right. But at the end of the day, I really took that away. And I have this, this saying now that you, you build fences around talent. It's part of my job as a leader is to build fences around young talent. And I, I actually believe this will be a bit controversial, maybe. But I actually believe that near failure is a better teacher than actual failure. Because the way I operate is I allow my people within those boundaries, those fenced in area to do whatever it is they think they need to do, right? Whatever decisions they need to make, whatever actions they need to take, that's that's fine. But what sometimes I'll see them approaching the edge of the fence and I'm like, you know what? Come over here. Let's have a conversation. Tell me why you're doing that. Tell me why you think that's the right decision. Oftentimes they convince me it's okay. Other times I'm I'm convinced it's not okay. So they get all the learning associated with that event, but they don't have the pain of actually failing. And how do you know that they're close to the to the side? Like, so you're watching, you know, they're obviously they're in communication, they're telling you what they're doing, they're telling you about decisions they're making. And then you're just going, mm, you're watching. Right. Is that it? I mean, obviously you're in dialogue or you wouldn't know. Correct. Right. Yeah. You're in dialogue. You're watching. You're looking at the measurements and reporting. You're talking to others. 
Um, sometimes you just talk to others like, you know, you should ask him a few questions and see if he thinks he's on the right track. So you're talking to others. Mm-hmm. You, you have lots of different ways to gather that intelligence um, without compromising the individual. But the important lesson is to sit down and say, okay, help me understand why you think that's the right decision. Sometimes they can't justify it. And it's like, oh, I just think it is. I'm like, no, that's that's not an answer. <laughs> that that right. you gotta explain to me why you think it is the right decision. And sometimes they can't. And so you 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 tell them, you know, we don't think that's a wise course of action. So it's understanding what's behind their actions so you can help them. Yeah, that's great. For sure. For sure. Awesome. So it's just been a something I learned early in my career. Um, you know, the other thing I would say is the the value of mentors cannot be overstated. Um, and mentors, by the way, shouldn't necessarily be in your line of sight. They shouldn't be your boss. I mean, they can be, but look for people both inside the organization and outside the organization who you, who can mentor you. And I've had many people call me up and say, would you mentor me? And I'm like, eh, okay, yes, I'll do that. But the quid pro quo for that is there's going to be honesty. There's going to be transparency. And you may not like some of what you hear. But that's if you want that, then then let's do it. But I had great mentors. Fred is a good example of a very early mentor who took a risk on me. It paid off for him, candidly. It paid off for me as well. And it really accelerated my learning. And I think one of the most important things we give back is this mentoring to the next generation so that they can be successful leaders as well. Mm. I mean, the great leader, no. I, I think of it this yeah. way, Lori. So um, Howard Schultz, who was the founder and creator of Starbucks, right? Many people would say he's an awesome leader. And in many respects, he was great marketing executive, great leader in many respects. Do you know how many times he's had to go in and run Starbucks? He's on his third time now. So in other words, he runs it, he finds a successor, he doesn't like the successor, fires him, the board brings him back. This has happened three times. And so when people say somebody like Howard Schultz, who I respect is a great quote leader, I have to question that. Because a great leader would make sure that he he or she developed people, had the right folks in the number two, number three, and number four positions, and they can walk away. Great leaders can't be judged until they're gone, until mm. they're no longer in that position of leadership. Um, and if they leave and everything runs along perfectly well, then they were a great leader. They prepared the organization. They prepared the people. They, they did a great job. If, however, the place falls apart after they leave, I question whether they actually were a strong leader or not. Mm. Interesting. That's a perspective. That's a a perspective. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love it. And I can't wait to read, to get the book and read the rest of the principles. We we have about four minutes left. Where, where would you love to be in five years? I know you said you do some speaking, you have the book, you know, you've been having your two years if if you could just imagine like the best possible scenario for yourself, what what kind of difference would you have made or where would you be in five years, do you think? So I'll give you a few thoughts on that. One, we will have found a treatment for CMT. That would be number one. I don't know that we'll get to a cure, but a treatment would be great for the okay. 3 million people that suffer with it around the world. So that'd be number one. Number two, I will have, given back in some other ways, mentoring young people, taking care to ensure that the next generation of leaders is ready for the challenges that, they, that they're going to be confronted, be confronted with. That'd be number two. Number three, I would hope that my family, my two daughters, my wife, were still going strong. 
everything's you know that they're they're a wonderful we're a wonderful little cohort and i would i would hope and expect that that family unit would still be you know intact and, and that we'd add to it hopefully with son-in-laws and maybe some children or whatever the case might be grandchildren whatever the case might be so that's important to me uh, as well and at the end of the day as i said earlier nobody's going to write on my tombstone or my epitaph you know that i was ceo of this or that what they're going to say is i hope they say is you know, here lies a, a good man, here lies a good person, an ethical person, a moral person, a person of character, that would be good enough for me. Mm. That's awesome. What, you know, one of the things, um, it, it seems like you believe in people, you know, some people think the worst of people mm-hmm. and expect the worst or look for them to fail. Whereas it seems like you, I don't know if it was a natural thing for you, but that you, you know, Fred believed in you, you then, you know, send that down the line. And I think, you know, the world could be a better place if we all believed in people instead of letting our egos run, you know, trying to step on top of everyone to make ourselves look better or the insecurity. I mean, I have it, I get jealous and compare and it's, you know, that's when I pull out one of my books to get back to the other side where where there's connection and love, you know, but it's not always automatic. How did you, and I know we only have like a minute, but was there any particular moment where you became that or you were always looking for the best in people? Yeah, I don't think I could pinpoint a moment, but one of the principles that I always talk to my teams about is this one. It's assume positive intent mm. until until proven otherwise. You have to assume positive intent with your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, your co coworkers, whatever it might be. And I think that that does a lot for me. Um, yeah, there may be other, um, you know, other thoughts people have. But if you start from that position, yes, you're going to be disappointed from time to time. But more often than not, you're not going to be. Wow. You know, there's a guy that I was taking some courses with who said, Children, especially, but all of us, we mean well. We don't not mean well, but because of our stories and our brains, people oh, they're offended and all that stuff. But you know, the world would be different if if people just assume positive intent. So anyway, thank you so much, Peter. This has been fabulous, fascinating. Um, let me see if I can go back to your um website here. Here it is. We're with Peter De Silva. Handsome. That is like the best picture. I just, that's so, so awesome. I don't know if that's sexist, but that's what I'm saying. And here's his book, Taking Stock. Is it available on Amazon? They can get it. Amazon and pretty much any, uh, any of the online bookstores and, and physical bookstores as well. Okay. And how do they reach you if they wanted to have you speak or something? Is there a way on here or yeah, go to Peter, go to peterjdesilva.com, which is my okay. personal website. And, uh, you can send me a message or we can connect that way. Okay. So Peter J. Da Silva, Silva yep. dot com, And you can connect with Peter that way. Well, thank you so much, Peter. This has been great. It's great to meet you. And I look forward to hearing more about all the wonderful things you're doing in the world. Well, thank you. you Hillary. Thanks say? for all you're doing. Well, thank you for all you're doing for all of us in the world. So so thank you. I look to look forward to being with you again. Yes. Awesome. When you get the cure, when you get the treatment, <laughs> we'll let people know. Yeah. Awesome. Indeed. Thank Indeed. you.
Thank you.